0: To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes.
1: I found myself wanting to do every part of the production process. So we've done the seeding, the germination, the transplantation, the harvesting, the post-harvest processing. And I insisted that every new member of the leadership team that was hired go through the same training as all of our farm staff. And that was very valuable because then even as we did later time and material kind of efficiency exercises, everybody in the leadership team understood what that actually meant. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran.
0: Vertical Farming Podcast. This is season eight. I cannot believe it's been three years since I started the show way back in March of 2020 seven seasons of the show in the books it's been an amazing ride amazing connections with so many fascinating folks from the world of vertical farming i've attended multiple conferences now i've had guests come on for second and third rounds and i'm continuing to build more community more engagement and more resources for everyone in the vertical farming space and it's exciting to see all the developments happening and it shows no sign of slowing down in case you missed our last episode, it was the end of season seven, and we had David Farquhar on for round three. He's the CEO of Intelligent Growth Solutions, otherwise known as IGS. And we had a wide-ranging conversation about the importance of differentiating yourself as a technology company versus a farm, which is some of the conversations that are happening in this space now. They're doing some great work partnering with local councils and food banks and educational institutions to develop innovative solutions. And they're establishing a bigger presence in North America with their new headquarters in Loveland, Colorado. So please make sure to check that out if you haven't already. To kick off Season 8, following up on a connection I made at Indoor AgCon. Kicking off Season 8, I'm very happy to have a conversation today to share with you with Sonia Lowe. I saw Sonia briefly at Indoor AgCon earlier this year on stage and had a chance to introduce myself and invite her to the show and thankfully with the help of her team we were able to make that happen. Sonia's got a wide ranging background in vertical farming, and in this episode she shares her insights on the latest developments in the space, the role of genetics in improving crop yield and taste. We also discussed the importance of profitability for the industry's scalability and the potential of next generation agriculture. Sonia's background in law, management consulting and investment banking has given her a unique perspective, not only on entrepreneurship, but also on the investment options and opportunities in the ag tech space. I know you'll be inspired by her passion for delicious food, as we talk about that a little bit as well. I love the energy and and the excitement that Sonia brings to this conversation. I, I know you're really gonna enjoy this one and I couldn't think of a better way to kickoff season eight new season new reviews are waiting to be read if you've been waiting if you've been waiting seven seasons to submit your review then how about you do it now for season eight all you have to do is head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash vfp and i'll be sure to read yours out next episode we've also created a new community on linkedin it's called surprisingly enough vertical farming community i'll have links in the show notes but if you search for Vertical Farming Community on LinkedIn, you'll be sure to find it. We've had some past guests and folks interested in learning more about the space already join. It's been something I've held off on for a couple of years, but with year three of the show in full effect, I wanted to see if there was an opportunity to bring folks together together for more conversations about what's happening in the space and to share resources and opportunities. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Sonia, here are a few words from the amazing folks that continue to support this show. And remember, if you are interested in sponsorship opportunities this season, we do have them available. Reach out to me at harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. This year, VertiFarm takes place from September 26th through September 28th at the Exhibition Center in Dortmund, Germany. For those new to VertiFarm, it's the most significant trade fair for next-level farming and new food systems. Their international platform is set to showcase the latest developments in innovative, controlled production systems for vegetables, salad crops, herbs, and microgreens, as well as sustainable fish, insect breeding, fruit cultivation, and medicinal plants. VertiFarm is shaping the future of vertical farming and new food systems. Reserve your ticket and learn more at vertifarm.de. That's v-e-r-t-i-f-a-r-m.de. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that this is the space where I get to talk about some of the fantastic sponsors and supporters of this show. If you are interested in being one of those sponsors, by all means, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We've got inventory available for season seven, and the reach of the show just continues to increase year over year. And we'd love to partner with you and get the word out about your company or service. So Sonia Lowe, CEO of Unfold, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: So, for the benefit of the listener, we were connected briefly at Indoor AgCon in Las Vegas. It was my second time. Indoor AgCon last year was my very first vertical farming conference. And so, that's been a slow entry into the conference world and, and definitely one of the best experiences when you get to meet the people firsthand, face to face, who are really making a lot of interesting changes and developments in this space. Was it your first time at Indoor econ specifically?
1: No. So I hadn't attended in several years, I think, just like everybody else. And then had attended at the very beginning when it was very small, much more intimate, but also not full of professionals. (laughs) So there were a lot of long beards. And lots of people who uh, were really focused on the cannabis industry.
0: Oh, okay. And so what was your biggest takeaway being there this year? And it's specifically in your role as CEO of Unfold, was it a complete different experience? I understand from the team, it was the 10-year anniversary, but it also doubled since last year in terms of attendance.
1: I was really happy to see the size, you know, the kind of professionalization of the industry, the entrance of, of course, institutional capital, but which, of course, then attracts institutional level talent. The thing that was most gratifying for me was that there were people that during the pandemic, I'd only ever met them online. And, you know, meeting them in person was so wonderful. And, of course, nobody ever looks in person like they do on screen. And, you know, there (laughs) were lots of sort of exclamations. So, oh, so that's what you really look like. (laughs) But I also loved the fact that the booths were so informative, you know, and lots of players had really great collateral set up. So it was wonderful to, A, meet people in person after only having met them on screen over the last three years, and B, to see, you know, how very grown up the industry is becoming.
0: Speaking of experiences at at conferences and events, you recently posted on LinkedIn about your experience meeting Gordon Moore. Yeah. And I thought it'd be (laughs) fun if you could share that little story that he recently passed.
1: It's a very poignant memory for me. I had been invited to Davos. I'd won an accolade as one of sort of the world's hundred tech pioneers. And this was in the year 2000. So this is a long time ago. Okay. And Davos at the time was slightly more chaotic. I mean, now I think there's very organized chaos, you know, very sort of structured and, you know, your badge lets you go to different parts of the conference. But at the time, it literally was a sort of sleepy little ski town where, you know, really, significant world leaders gathered to have a sort of off-the-record conversation, right? And I must have looked very confused as I walked into the main hall. They had these sort of uh, gates that you badged through. And this very kindly older gentleman came up to me and he said, oh, are you lost? You know, is this your first time at Davos? And I said, yes, it is. And I'm here as a tech pioneer And he said, oh, well, you know, just kind of follow me around and I'll make sure you meet really interesting people and get to all of the bits that you need to get to. And I thought, okay, great. And if I'm not, you know, if I remember correctly, he was wearing like a cardigan, you know, and I thought, oh, what a really nice (laughs) kind of older man, right? And we ran around, and we took all the little buses, and I finally said to him, it was about two o'clock in the afternoon, I said, I'm so sorry, you've been really kind to me. I don't know who you are. (laughs) And he said, oh, I'm Gordon Moore. And he gave me his card, which was this impeccable cream-colored little rectangle with just Gordon B. Moore on it. (laughs) And I think it had a telephone number on the back. I've got it somewhere, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, he said, if you're ever in Silicon Valley, look me up. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'll do that. Not. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. I think it's hard to really think about the significance and the impact Gordon has had on the industry. And you can see a lot of people talking about him and his legacy on LinkedIn and, and various other places online. Can you think of anyone else of you know, there's several folks maybe that come to mind, but just in terms of that stature, I mean, there's a, a law named after him as well. And just kind of how, just thinking back about the impact of like one person in an industry and how that almost like leaves a legacy for him.
1: I think he stands in a class of his own, right? Yeah. For both his accomplishments, but also because of his graciousness. And I think that There is an enormous distinction between people who've created great wealth and people who leave a legacy, right? And I think he left a legacy for being kind and thoughtful and very accomplished in a way that I think the creation of great wealth without those characteristics, you know, money is money, but I think that the ability to use that money to great good is something that is Truly world changing. And, you know, he really walked the talk.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. It's very nice, especially when people maybe just see someone like that from afar to have had that personal contact with him really probably affirms for a lot of folks what they, you know, their opinions of him. Did that experience or did that experience color your thoughts about how important it is to be generous, to be helpful, to provide that mentor role for folks? who might've been in the same position you are. You know, do you think about that? You've had multiple roles as CEO and as a leader. And I'm wondering how you think about the ability to provide that guidance and mentorship to folks who are just coming up.
1: So the way I describe it is that in the last, I've been working for 30 something years. And during that time, I think of the people who've worked for me probably only, a handful, and I literally can count the people on the fingers of one hand, would not work for me again. And of the people I've worked for, again, I think I could count on the fingers of one hand people that would not hire me again, right? And so I think that's testament to an ability to work hard, but also to be compassionate and thoughtful. And that doesn't mean necessarily that I'm incapable of making hard decisions. I think what it means is you have to demonstrate your experience and longevity of term sometimes by helping somebody who is not in the right role to understand that they're not in the right role it is not kind to keep somebody in a role to which they are deeply unsuited and the you know other rule about startups is that everybody you hire is in the wrong role to start with because They're either underqualified for the role but have sheer raw talent and enthusiasm and they grow into the role as the company grows, or they're overqualified for the role and you just have to hope that the company grows quickly enough and continues to be challenging enough for the role to meet their expectations. But almost never have I hired somebody into a startup that is absolutely perfect at that point in time. Because then something is not right, right? Because the startup isn't moving quickly enough.
0: Yes. I'm curious, Sonia, you've had just mentioned your 30 year career. I saw that you had since, it appears to be like in legal, in the startup world, as an advisor, (laughs) multiple roles as a CEO. I'm curious, as you were starting your career, was the goal always to lead? To be a leader of a company, is that something that you had always aspired to?
1: Not at all. No, my early career was, as you noted, I thought I was going to be an attorney. An attorney, you know, even if you demonstrate thought leadership, is always in an advisory position, right? And I discovered after a really special internship at a firm called Gibson Dunn, which at the time was the largest law firm in the United States, that I was not really going to be an attorney. I didn't like being in the advisory role, per se. So I then went to Deloitte and was a management consultant there. And while I loved the deeper insight into business, I, again, didn't love the advisory role. And then the last advisory role I did was after my MBA, I went to become an investment banker. And that really clinched it for me that I really didn't like being on the advisor side at all. And so You know, ever since then, I've been a principal, whether that is a principal investor or whether that's to be an entrepreneur.
0: And as you have matured in your role as a leader, how have you grown specifically as a CEO?
1: So I had my first CEO role when I was 29. And this preceded the whole sort of dot-com era, right? So this was CEO of a retail venture. And... It's a lot harder to be sometimes the youngest person at the table. And of course, over time, I'm no longer the youngest person at the table. The other way I think I've grown is, again, that understanding that somehow the best kindness is not to keep somebody in a role, sometimes pushing them along into the right role, helping them understand where there might be a better fit is the right thing to do for that person, it's not a kindness to leave somebody in a job for which they are not well suited.
0: And is that something you learned along the way or is that something that gets that guidance that was provided by a mentor?
1: No, that's something I learned along the way, the hard way. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my natural tendency is to be collegiate and friendly and, and, I think as a female leader, your toolkit is both broader and narrower, right? Because I think shows of strength have to be expressed in different ways. Shows of displeasure have to be expressed in different ways because, you know, as a woman, the interpretation of how those emotions are expressed can be interpreted differently by the receiver. And as a result, you know, you develop a style over the various many years of working with people that is about being able to demonstrate leadership, demonstrate credibility and integrity, without it, you know, being perceived as overly aggressive or hard, because there are judgments expressed around, you know, these emotions, right, that wouldn't necessarily be ascribed to a man. so. Those are some of the nuances, I think, that you learn along the way.
0: I'd be remiss with the mention of the appropriate demonstration of strength if I didn't mention the fact that you're also a black belt, if I remember correctly.
1: (laughs) Not in many years. (laughs) Is it in karate? (laughs) No, in taekwondo.
0: In taekwondo, yeah, that's good.
1: So I'm South Korean by origin. Yeah. Yes. So it's an amazing thing. Both of my kids are taking it now. And, okay. you know, it's fantastic for the physical discipline, the mental awareness and discipline. It's very hard to do as an adult, the amount of time. So I gave it up after my first real job after business school, because you can't keep up a level of engagement with the sport without really being, you know, training a lot. And so, you know, I probably did it for a couple of years after I finished business school, but then transitioned to other sports.
0: Would you say that the lessons learned during that time? I took martial arts for a period of time as well. There's something about the discipline that you learn that's instilled in you. And I think those lessons never leave you, even if you, you know, don't end up continuing with the sport.
1: Indeed. And, you know, things like flexibility, I continue to be very flexible. You know, I probably don't have the strength that I did, but, you know, agility, the ability to be coordinated, all of these things stay with you for life.
0: I also you seem to have uh, a lot of talents and interests as well. I noticed that you're a cookbook author (laughs) as well. Where did that passion, was that a lifelong passion for food?
1: So I've always loved to cook. And I went to culinary school as a hiatus between one particularly challenging venture, which ended up being net successful, but really, really draining, and then setting up my own firm. And I absolutely loved it. I loved cooking and doing so at a level that was you know, professional, basically. And so when I came back into the farming world, which was unusual, the lens that I always applied was going to be from a sensory basis, right? Is, does this taste good? Is it, does it taste better? And, you know, the science, the precision of vertical farming, of course, appealed to me, but the ability to replicate that, the difference in taste and texture, the difference, the implied difference in nutrition because of the freshness. All of these things really mattered to me. Did you attend
0: with the intentions of becoming a chef or did you just want to have the experience of learning like the culinary arts?
1: I wanted to take my cooking skills to another level. I didn't really think I was going to be a professional chef for very long and all told I did it for about two years. Okay. And I didn't love the inefficiency of the restaurant industry, and there's a lot of waste, a lot of talent goes to waste, because again, management skills are not something that are often taught. And so you see, you know, there's that great saying about how people join companies but leave managers, and I saw that a lot in cooking right? People are very, very talented. They join a Michelin star restaurant because they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to learn from this great person. And then they turn out to be a monster. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a pity, right? It's a pity that talent doesn't necessarily get nurtured. And that that sort of monster-like behavior is considered very normal. And that then those people go on to create their own restaurants because they are talented, but then they manage in a very similar way. So that cycle gets perpetuated.
0: Yeah, it's almost glamorized. You know, think about the Gordon Ramsay Hell's Kitchen model. (laughs) They even make shows about it. And like, it's almost like a cliche. It's the chef that like will rip people's heads off. And it's sad to think that, you know, people have that perspective and probably have had that experience working in those restaurants.
1: Oh, they definitely have, yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's inspiring because I've always appreciated. I've loved cooking. The Chef's Table series on Netflix, I think, is just beautiful. I get. I still have my subscription to Cooks Illustrated, so I think at some point, I may even just thinking about it as not with the goal of being a chef, but just I think to your point, there's something to be said about the discipline of learning the skills and, and improving, even if it, the end product is just to improve my skills as a cook. I think would be beneficial. So that's something that uh, I'll definitely be giving some second thought to.
1: I think it's a wonderful skill to have. And even at the end of a very long day, I find it enormously relaxing to cook. And now yeah, I you know, well. I cook for my kids, right? But yeah. I do love it. I love the sort of I also love washing dishes. So, you know, that's sort of
0: <laughs> it is too, yeah.
1: It definitely caters to the O C D in me.
0: I can definitely relate. There's something meditative and relaxing <laughs> about putting that energy towards that. So on the same page there. So as we gradually make our way into the world of vertical farming, you did have a stint at Google, I noticed as well. And I'm, I'm always curious about folks who have had experience in the Google complex, what that was like, any takeaways from that?
1: I think the organization today is very different from the one that I joined. I was at the cusp of the first generation of managers who were just vesting out of their shares and everybody had made a very significant sum of money. Some had made transformative amounts and others had merely become very, very wealthy. And I think as with so many first-generation technology companies, there was a mismatch between the sheer raw talent and the management skills that were required to manage an organization at scale. So, you know, coming in as somebody who'd had more than 10 years of work experience, it was challenging to be confronted with, you know, questions which didn't seem very professionalized. So I would ask questions about why certain parts of the process were set up the way they were. And I would get a response, which is that's not very googly of you to ask that question. So my sort of more measured response would be, so What is googliness? How is it defined? And the answer was, well, if you have to ask that question, then you don't understand. Which is a really frustrating and I mean it's a little bit like a playground, right? Where, you know, you're not going to get chosen for the team because you just aren't part of the team. And, you know, my tenure there wasn't very long, specifically because of these cultural issues. And I think the organization has gone on to grow. Again, I think I was there at an inflection point. And I think that the self-awareness of the professionalization that needed to occur, particularly in terms of management skills, has occurred, right? And I just happened to be there at this inflection point.
0: Thanks for sharing that. It's always interesting to hear what folks experience there is like. So your next move was into uh, CEO role at Crop One and I'm wondering if you could just tell the story about where you were at the time what you were hearing or experiencing in terms of the world of vertical farming and how you know the conversations leading up to you you know making being offered that position and deciding to take it and what that experience was like
1: Yeah so I wasn't a sort of arms-length hire right what had happened was that a former boss of mine from Deloitte had approached me because I was working with a European family investor and said, oh, you know, you guys are making investments at early stage. And I said, sure. And I saw that it was farming. And I said, well, I don't know anything about farming or agriculture. And I discussed it with the head of the family. And he said, oh, we know a lot about agriculture, because, you know, we own a lot of agricultural land. And I said, great, well, you know, here's this deal, have a look at it. And they came back with uh a view, which was a very powerful one, you know, that if the unit economics of this type of deal are even remotely true, this is something that's going to transform agriculture. And so I put in a little bit of capital alongside the more substantial check that this investor wrote, and really thought nothing of it. And I was helping the entrepreneur with, you know, just sort of tidying up their books, you know, classic entrepreneur, lots of enthusiasm, not a lot of governance and 9 months later was confronted with a pretty serious crisis at the company and you know had basically the kind of question we had to ask ourselves was do we write this off or you know does do we try to fix it and i spoke to all of my co-investors and they were like well can you handhold him can you see if you can figure this out and i said Okay. So I leaned in um, thinking I was going to be there for six months, maybe. And I was there for six and a half years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was definitely an unlikely transition, not anything that was particularly planned, but something for which I am forever grateful because, you know, at a relatively later stage in my life, I discovered that this is my industry. I mean, this is the thing I want to do Forever and ever.
0: When you joined, was it Crop One and did Freshbox? would they both co- coexisting at the same time, or was there a timing that Freshbox came after?
1: No, there was another name which the founder had given the company. When we did our trademark check, we realized there were three other companies that were trademarked okay. with the same name or a variation thereof. You know, with hyphens here and there, and trademarking that particular name would have been extremely challenging. So we went through a branding exercise and the fact that we were originally in shipping containers, people liked the idea of a sort of fresh box. And then CropOne became the holding company to hold the intellectual property, but also this notion that there was a starting point in this industry. It was almost like a reset button for agriculture. And so that's why the two brands coexist. But it went through a formal rebranding.
0: Okay. I know there's a, probably a lot to comment on in your time there, especially your entry into the world of vertical farming. But if you had to think about you know, this entry into a new space, what were some of the, maybe like the key learnings or any ahas that you had as a new entry and as you were learning the intricacies of this space and a lot of the, the business development challenges that were ahead of you?
1: That's a really good question, right? So it's one thing to be delivering a new product within an incumbent industry. It's another thing to be delivering a new product from a new industry. And I found myself wanting to do every part of the production process. So, you know, I've done the seeding, the germination, the transplantation, the harvesting, the post-harvest processing. And I insisted that every new member of the leadership team that was hired go through the same training as all of our, you know, farm staff. And that was very, very valuable because then you know, even as we did later time and materials, kind of efficiency exercises, everybody in the leadership team understood what that actually meant. The other thing was getting our customers to understand why this product was more interesting, more valuable. And probably the seminal moment came not when we were selling into retail. I mean, I think you know, retail has such a problem with returns and losses, particularly in produce, that anything that promises longer shelf life and that has a discernible taste and texture difference is going to be readily accepted. So I never thought that that was a challenge. You know, it was pretty much pushing on an open door. But the next piece really came around profitability. And Profitability at the time was sort of a dirty word. People were like, why are you driving this farm to profitability? And the answer was because it's a farm, right? And the drive towards profitability really took every bit of business acumen, every bit of understanding about the underlying technology and what it was capable of doing, all of the humbling aspects of plant biology, because growing food is humbling, And really understanding those efficiencies that could be delivered by the team. And we forced our subscale farm into profitability for two years, which was truly extraordinary. And, you know, I think those lessons carried me forward to the point now where everybody's talking about profitability. I mean, that was one of the other big takeaways from Indoor AgCon, right, is you know, my friend and colleague in the industry, Barry Murchie, who's the CEO of Goodleaf, he said, you know, I think the industry is splitting into the dreamers, the squanderers, and the builders, right? And now it's the builders that are getting all of the attention because profitability is back in style. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's cool again, yeah.
1: And that's great. That's great. But I've never taken my eye off that particular ball. And I think that this industry... And vertical farming as a farm factor has its rightful place in agricultural infrastructure. But I don't think it's going to be able to continue without, you know, positive unit economics. I mean, I think every farm needs to be driven to have positive unit economics.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something that I noticed as a trend in those conversations and in the panels, you know, the refocus back on, on profitability. And I think it's probably an important discussion to have. And I appreciate that distinction of those different phases of the dreamers <laughs> and the squanders. And and I think it is important to, especially for folks looking at the industry from the outside, right? You know, they're, they're seeing a lot of the investment coming in and then they're seeing, obviously the failures get highlighted. You see Fast Company, you know, just all they talk about is like, has it reached its peak cycle? And obviously for folks that are within the industry, they know that the story is much more complex but when you don't have companies that are focusing on profitability, it allows for some of those other failures to kind of seep through and, into the news. And I think uh, it's not doing the industry any justice.
1: Yeah, I think that the industry is populated with extraordinarily bright people, right? Yeah. And you know, people who are bringing their... Uh, time and talent and treasure from every walk of life. I mean, there is not a uh, preset pool of former vertical farmers out there. And those lateral sort of pools of wisdom are very valuable in getting this industry up and running very quickly, but also in really achieving step change gains. So I have every confidence that the industry is going to go on to again, hold its rightful place in agricultural infrastructure. You know, what I think is now happening, which is a very powerful thing to be happening, is that people are not speaking to the lack of profitability as a desirable state, right? I think before there was this notion that you could just outrun profitability. And of course, there are aspects to the industry on the intellectual property development side that don't necessarily have to be profitable because capital that invests in that understands that there has to be development. But I think the farms themselves, in order for the industry to scale, require themselves to be profitable, right? I mean, they have to be project financeable, not venture financeable. And I mean, just to give you an indication, I once uh, ran through a really boring math exercise of, you know, what is the target addressable market. You know How many farms of scale would that entail? How many have been built to date? And basically, the number came to about 1,100 scale farms in order to have a viable addressable TAM in North America. I mean, we haven't even hit 50 farms, right? Oh. So there's a vast, vast runway ahead of us. But, you know, what I don't have is I don't have a crystal ball as to when those farms are going to scale, but you know that is a reasonable target number. I think it's achievable, I think it's perfectly financeable, but it won't be financeable in the lack of in the absence of unit profitability.
0: That's an important uh, math exercise that I think a lot of people would are going to really appreciate, <laughs> so I think that particular segment of this interview I'm sure will be getting replayed a lot. So as we make our way into current day, after you left Crop one you held a a variety of different roles, uh, a a small stint at sensei, some time in the dairy industry as well. So I'll let you sort of take us through to present day and sort of highlight more memorable experiences. I know you've had some advisory roles as well, leading up to the conversation about you you taking on the role of CEO at
1: Unfold. So... I left uh, Crop One and joined Sensei Ag, which is Larry Ellison's and David Agus's uh, indoor growing venture. And we grew exclusively in greenhouses and, you know, in four different climates. And that was amazing. And I love the immersion into a growing form factor in greenhouses that use direct light. And so I'm very much form factor agnostic. I think where you can use light, you should. You know, the whole notion of the kind of significantly more control attributed to vertical farming, that is powerful. And I think it'll be powerful for certain crops, but I don't know that it necessarily is true in all locations. So I was very grateful for my time building, acquiring, and retrofitting greenhouses and growing a multitude of crops. So not just leafy greens, which has been the sort of vertical farming go-to crop.
0: Did you engage with uh, Larry Ellison? This is Oracle Larry Ellison.
1: This is Oracle Larry okay. Ellison. Yes.
0: <laughs> did you? What was? Did you get to engage with him uh, in your time there? Yeah. What was that like?
1: <laughs> I did. Yes, I did. Interesting. Yeah. Right. I mean, Larry is an extraordinary individual and sits in an extraordinary information flow that is, you know, only comparable to probably a handful of people in the world.
0: Yeah. I imagine that was interesting.
1: So, you know, I learned a great deal. And then the three boards, so I've served on. The board of Griffith Foods since February of 2019, which would have coincided with my time at Crop One and Heart Dairy. I was named to their board in March of 2022, and Urban Grow, which is a NASDAQ publicly listed venture, I was named to their board in November of 2021. So everything has to do with next-generation agriculture, whether that's regenerative agriculture, whether that's climate efficiency. You know, the dairy, for example, is a carbon-neutral dairy, which is the reason why I agreed to serve on the board. And I think they can be a model for how dairy can be done and done well. Um, And then Urban Grow, of course, is an EPC in the indoor growing space. And, you know, this is a much necessary and valuable aspect to the industry. So all of it sort of fits good.
0: For the benefit of the listener, can you define EPC?
1: Oh, it's engineering procurement. And I think it's not consulting, but it's essentially design engineering. It's the ability to... Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. Design build. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a design-build firm. Okay. Yeah, they're architecture-led. They have built over 500 facilities.
0: Okay, and that takes us to the commerce. I'm curious about the. I um, love origin stories on the show. So you know these conversations about you being approached and what that looks like, and if that's a conversation with John or other members of, of the team as well.
1: So. I was approached by an executive recruitment firm that were looking for Unfold. And, you know, given that I already had three boards that I was serving on, I was trying to think through, you know, am I going to continue to only do board roles or am I going to take on an operating role again? And I've always believed that the genetics piece of indoor growing is going to be transformative. I think that not just for yield, which of course is the big target, but also for taste and texture. So, you know, irrespective of what type of form factor you're growing in, irrespective of where you are in terms of your distance to And urbanization, I think that genetics will play an incredibly important role. And um, so I joined Unfold in July of last year and, you know, have really immersed myself in how much and how quickly the genetics industry has changed in the last 15 years. So it used to be that people were still breeding the traditional Mendelian way, right? Unchanged since the 1700s. And now, with the computing power that we have and with the sequencing of the genome of so many you know, food plants, wheat, I believe, was the last major one about three years ago. We now have all of this molecular information about plants. And so, you know, the kind of 14 generations of breeding can be done computationally. and then, you do the physical breeding in a greenhouse, which can dramatically shorten breeding cycles, but can also mean that you can search for traits, you know, again, on a database basis, as opposed to physically having to identify them in the breeding process. So that's a huge, huge change, and very, very promising for the indoor growing industry.
0: Did you look at the, when you were considering taking on the role, did you see it as the sort of Appropriate next step in your career in terms of, you know, in terms of, and thinking about the challenges that you would have in this role and the opportunities as well?
1: There was definitely a, a structured view, a much more structured approach than I had taken when I joined Crop One, right? I mean, Crop One, I sort of fell into it. I think with Sensei, the opportunity to work with greenhouses and to work with Larry was, you know, again, without parallel. And the genetics piece was something that I knew was something I wanted to add to my understanding, if not skill set. And again, the immersion has been extraordinarily insightful.
0: So we're probably nine months in, roughly, since you said July. And so if you had to look back in terms of what you thought you were signing up for when you joined and what your experience has been like with the team and what, it look what the, the the roadmap looks like for you in your role at Unfold and for the company itself. Has that changed at all? And you know, what's the vision look like for, for you know, I know it's hard to project anything beyond 12 months <laughs> in this industry, but how do you think about you know your mandate going forward?
1: I think the mandate remains the same. I think that the TAM is large, uh, but the Availability of that TAM has been delayed, and it's been delayed by a number of sort of exogenous factors, right? Land war in Europe, you know, banking crisis, many large macroeconomic factors that have nothing to do with unfold per se, but definitely, uh, you know, affect its TAM. And necessarily, I think that means that for us as a team, you know, we have to think about how we manage the company if our runway is going to be lengthened in terms of addressable market.
0: What's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently?
1: You know, I think that is the tough question, right? Which is, if our TAM is there, we know it's there, but the time frame in which it's going to come to fruition is lengthened by all accounts, right? Through just market conditions, What do we need to be doing between now and then in order to progress, but also keep our costs low? And that's just the question every startup is asking themselves that's confronting a similar situation.
0: Do you think about uh, your visibility in this role as a female CEO, um, especially in light? And it's something that I've experienced as I started the podcast the scarcity of uh, female leaders in the space. And thankfully, I've, I've done my best to highlight a lot of those stories here. But I feel like there's also an opportunity to sort of shine a light on this as a viable career path or in a viable industry for not only females, but also people of. of color who might be interested in joining the industry. I think about that as being uh, an immigrant myself. Is that something you give any thought to?
1: It's not something I actively think about, but you know, it's hard to ignore when I'm on a stage and everybody else is a white dude yeah. in a Patagonia vest. I mean, to be fair, I think the industry draws from so many pools of talent just because there isn't a ready pool of talent for vertical farming. I think that inevitably about the relationship with capital, right? Because when an industry is venture financed, it's always sobering to remember that only 2% of venture capital gets allocated to women. And that number has fallen during both the pandemic as well as the current economic situation. So if 2% is the upper limit, then I'm more than adequately represented on that stage, right? Yeah. If 2% is not the upper limit, then we should definitely be embracing more diversity. And that is across the board for anything that's venture financed. And I think that venture funds are getting slightly better at it. But, you know, until we can remove the emotion and the bias from the investment process, and you know, It's always going to exist and it's always going to skew in favor of people who look like you. So, you know, I think that this industry is has a much better chance at sort of democratization of opportunity because food is universal. But I think also the future of agriculture in the 21st century is very much about being distributed, being digital and being proximate. And those three things would agitate for an entrepreneurial pull that are not up and down Sand Hill Road.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if you think about how you entered this field, if you think about what you see when you attend conferences like Indoor Icon, the opportunities that present themselves, that unfold itself, what has you most excited, you know, if you sort of like look to the future in terms of opportunities or just the industry itself, like, you know, where you know, What lights you up when you think about what's possible here?
1: I think those three things, right? Distributed architecture, the digitization of agriculture, and the proximity of novel architectural, you know, sort of agricultural form factors. You know, there are two things that I believe are going to kill us off as humans. <laughs> One is climate change and the other is diet. Because the latency between cause and effect is incredibly long. And, you know, nobody realizes that their gas-guzzling car today, I mean, probably today, but I think 50 years ago or 60 years ago, you know, the cause to effect of, you know, melting polar ice caps was probably not as well understood. And the same again today of, you know, if you don't have 50% of your plate that's fruits and vegetables uh, versus processed carbs or processed meat, you know, it's hard to tell a young person or a kid that's perfectly enjoying their Doritos. And, you know, personally, I love Doritos, so don't get me wrong, is going to be the heart attack, you know, at 57, right? So I think that our form of agriculture has an incredibly important and visible role to play in closing that latency gap for both climate change and diet, and therefore reducing those threats to humanity,
0: (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And so that's what keeps me enthused and excited about this industry.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost a a double-edged sword how resilient the body is because I think about the stuff I ate when I was little, Lucky Charms, and McDonald's Happy Meals, and just like, wow, (laughs) you know. And that's me that learned even better, and there's folks that just never learned better and, and just still have those bad habits and, and the body somehow manages to keep not necessarily humming along, but and obviously not at its prime, but it, it's, it does a lot. So you can imagine what's possible if you fed it the proper nutritious food. And, uh, and that's what has me hopeful as well.
1: And that's complex, right? I mean, I think that proper nutrition is definitely something that's available today, but it's not available at low cost and it's not available deliciously right? Because, you know, you go into a food desert, and the local um, supermarket will have a bunch of mealy apples, right? And as a kid, you don't want to eat that. I read an extraordinary article about how children have to be served a new food, a minimum of 14 times before they'll accept it. And if you are a parent that is, you know, fairly wealthy, You're going to put that broccoli on your kid's plate 14 times, even if you know it's just going to get thrown away. If you're a parent that is not, you can't afford that calorie loss, right? So you're going to put food on your kid's plate that you know they're going to eat. And I think those of us in produce appreciate the health benefits of produce, appreciate the deliciousness of a berry that's been picked out of the field, But that's not the berry that gets delivered, right? So we live with this infrastructure that's kind of a 19th century scale manufacturing set of principles around food that perhaps are not the best for our health and also for our palate. And again, with that chef's lens, I'm always going to be looking for deliciousness as a driver to behavioral change. And I think that's where vertical farming has an incredibly important and powerful role to play, is that I think deliciousness is easier to dial in when you're in a vertical farming context.
0: I'm making a note that I think I just may have come up with a title for this episode. <laughs> deliciousness is a driver to, to change. So I'll be listening back. but It'll, it'll have some aspect of that. So as we wrap up, Sonia, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I've been leaving a few minutes at the end of these conversations. Because of the nature of this podcast, we have a lot of your colleagues listening in the industry, people interested in entering the industry, who are, or people who are have been doing this for some time. So is there a message that you have for folks in the world of vertical farming? And I, I just want to kind of open up this, that platform for anything that comes to mind for you.
1: I think we have a brilliant future as long as we act with integrity and focus on the delicious.
0: That's a very succinct way of um, stating the the challenges we have ahead of us, as well as the opportunities. I was really excited to to have connected with you, to have met you and for this opportunity for you to share your very inspiring story. So it's been interesting to see how, maybe not uh, in the moment, that you, you could see where the path was. But obviously, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. And you think about all the experiences you've had. They almost put you in a position to this present day moment and being the right person at the right place at the right time. I, I think it's really interesting to see how sort of life lays out the path for you. <laughs> it may not always be linear, but at some point you end up doing what I feel you're meant to do. So I, I get that sense uh, that that's the case with you. So I appreciate you sharing your journey with us today.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on your show.
0: So unfold.ag for folks to get connected with the company anywhere else. We should send people to learn more about the company or connect with you.
1: Unfold.ag is correct.
0: Thanks again for your time, Sonia. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Sonia for coming on the show, sharing an hour of her time and also sharing her uniquely inspiring story with my audience. Super grateful for the connection we made and for following her journey in her new role as CEO at Unfold. Once again, I'm grateful to be partnering again with Cultivated for season eight as title sponsor. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. As a reminder, you heard me mention at the top of the episode, if you're enjoying this show, if you're enjoying this episode or a past episode, and you have not yet left us a rating and a review, please do so at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. We've got a two-parter to kick off season eight. Tune in in a few days for my round three conversation With Eric Levesque, CEO of Cultivated, this one gets a little bit more personal. We learn a little bit more about Eric's backstory and also a take from Eric on what's been happening in the space lately. So it's a really, really great conversation. Make sure you check that out. Until we meet again, here's to your health.
1: Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.